I'm going to invite you to John chapter 7. Uh, John 7 is where we're going to be this morning. A, a beautiful section of scripture to, to encourage us in really pursuing after God. And, and you know, as I approach this text, if I, kind of, if I kind of set up where I think Jesus is in this story as it relates to our life, you know, I think about the world around me. Sometimes I, 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 when I pay it, poke my head out of the sand and I just kind of look, look at what's going around me, I, I quickly want to dive back down. But, but I, as I look around, I think you know, the world is falling apart. And, and in that, I want, I want to at least get life right. And I want my life to matter, right? And I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, because of your presence this morning, you're probably with me in that sort of an attitude, right? I, I didn't, I'm not here just to waste my time, and I don't think you're here just to waste your time. You want to get life right, and, and you want life to matter too. But you know, I, I want to say, when I think about that, I, I'm not interested in just being the John Wayne of this world. I think sometimes as Americans, we, we sort of have that mentality like, okay, if I'm going to stand up, it's got to be big, and I've got to be the savior of everything. And I, and I just look at that and say, you know, I I, I'm not, I don't need to be the savior of anything. I've already got, uh, got one, and he's, he's pretty good at that role, right? I mean, his name is Jesus, and he's the savior of the world. I want Jesus to be Jesus. I'll be me, and I'll, I'll be what God has created me to be, right? And, and so whether God uses me to make little waves or whether God uses me to, gr- to make great waves, I just want to make godly waves. I want to make the right kind of waves that God, God has made me for in, in this world, and I'm, I'm certain you do too. And, and you know, when I... Th- when I consider how that would look in my life, something I just, even over vacation, just was meditating on was, was the idea of what it looks like being a Christian, Christ follower, looking to Jesus and, and what his life was about. And, and one of the verses that the Lord really used to churn in my mind over this, this last week, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17 God the Father gives an interesting statement about Jesus. And I've talked about this verse a few times for us as a church. And, and a lot of it I've gone back to the Old Testament to show its implications of, of why the Father gives this statement about Jesus. But I just want to look at the, the idea that it represents, not so much in its historical context, but how it plays out in our lives. I'll, I'll just think about this for a minute. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And something that really struck me about this verse as I thought about it this past week was um, what the Father says about Jesus, knowing Jesus really hasn't done anything in his ministry yet. When the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, it's really not about what Jesus has done to this point because Jesus' ministry hasn't even started The Father is pleased by Jesus, not because of what he's done. I mean, you think of what this statement is. This statement is the inauguration of his ministry. It's from this point Jesus goes on and does all the miracles that you read about in Scripture. But yet, God the Father in in this statement says about Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased. And you think, what has Jesus done to this point? Well, he's been a, a carpenter. He's been a good son, I guess, to his parents. And he's learned the Old Testament and walked with the Father. I mean, he really hasn't done these enormous things in life that we read about in the Gospels because his ministry hasn't even started. Yet yet the Father says of him, in whom I am well pleased. And so according to God, your greatness is not driven by what you do, but by who you are connected to. Do you see that? 
I mean, that's what Jesus' life has been to this point, that the Father has said, and you, I'm well pleased, because Jesus' ministry hasn't even started. But if you look at what Jesus' life has been at this point, it's just, it's been about fellowship with the Father. And so what God is really teaching us here in this story is your greatness is not driven by what you do, but by who you're connected to. And why is that? Well, it's because who you're connected to will determine what it is that you do. Uh, they say that and maybe in the most practical way, you want to become a millionaire, hang out with millionaires. Right? You, you, want to, you want to become a horrible person, hang out with horrible people. Right? You want to, you want to, what you want to model in your life, uh, what you're attached to will determine what that becomes. And, and, and that's what, it's, what we're learning here in this lesson, which is why I would say John chapter 7, when we approach this text, this is kind of like a Dr. Seuss sort of statement here, but it's not about the what, but about the who. And, and when we look at John 7, that's, that's the idea that, that Jesus is sharing with us the significance of not so much about what you do, but who you're connected to, because who you are connected to determines who you will become. And so if you want your life to matter, you want to get it right, the question isn't about just looking at yourself or whether or not you're a do-gooder. It's to define and orient what your life really is about because your, your, your direction determines your destination. And John chapter 7 is all about that. But when we approach this text, what's important to see here is how Jesus contrasts this thought for us. Because John 7 becomes that chapter where really Jesus uh, sees his demise take place. This is the chapter that really spurs the Jewish people on to to want to kill Jesus. In fact, when you look at this chapter, it's mentioned over and over again. Verse 1, uh, they want to kill Jesus. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, they want to kill me. Verse 25. They, they're acknowledging Jesus. Yeah, they, they want to kill you. And so in uh, verse 30, they, they grab temple police and they're like, let's go find Jesus and arrest him. So this, this chapter, what Jesus says in this chapter is a, is a very dividing discussion as far as the culture is concerned to the point that they really hate Jesus. And so this, what Jesus is saying here is, is a very significant statement, so much so that Jesus knows that he's putting his life on the line for saying what he's about to say, yet he finds it so important that he wants to say it anyway. And so Jesus now in this story is going to contrast uh, the world versus him. I I don't think it's so much Jesus versus the world. I think when you stand for truth, it'll naturally put that divide there, but it's the world in opposition against Jesus. It's the world versus Jesus. And and if I were just to hang this on two verses for you to look at, I I think for us, this comes in, in verse seven. And then it really builds for us in verse 37 and 38. So these two contrasting verses, I just want to look at for just a moment. What the world says versus who Jesus is. And verse 7 says this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its deeds are evil. And then the opposing thought to that, so Jesus recognizing the world here, verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to unpack really those, those two thoughts as it plays out in this, this narrative of, of Jesus's life here. And I'm going to, I'm going to lean more into verse 37, 37 here at the end, but let's just, let's just consider verse seven for just a moment, what Jesus is saying here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its deeds are evil. Jesus calls the world evil evil. Why does he do this? You think about that. Why, why does he do this? In fact, if you just really thought about it in this context for a moment, where Jesus is saying this, 
Jesus is saying this in a society that's really full of religious do-gooders. And he's more honestly directing this to the leaders of this religiously do-good society. He's calling what we would probably typically look at as, as good people, and he's calling it in that moment evil. And that's a sobering thought. Because yeah, often in our society we say, you know, as long as you're good, that's all that matters. But yet Jesus is in the middle of that type of society and he's referencing their actions in that moment as evil. Why? Why would God reference this world as evil? In fact, didn't God make the world? And when God made the world, according to Genesis, the first thing that he says about the world is that it's very good, right? He makes every day, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he makes Adam and Eve, and he says, it's very good, and his creative work is done. Why, why now is Jesus referencing this world as evil? Well, just to clarify, I think it's important what Jesus is saying here. He, he isn't really saying the world itself is evil, right? And that's not what the phrase is. He says, it's the deeds of the world. The deeds of, of the world are evil. Now, why, why are the deeds of the world evil? The, the things of this world aren't evil. Like innate objects in and of themselves aren't evil. It's what you do with the objects that God has created that determine whether or not it's, it's evil. Money in itself isn't evil. It's what you do with money that determines whether or not it's used for God's glory or evil. Power in itself is not evil. It's what you do with it that determines whether it's evil. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, right? Sex and sexuality is not evil. God made it, and God made it for joy to be experienced, right? But it's what you do with it that determines whether or not it's used for, for evil. So, so what is What is evil? Um, if you look it up in the Webster Dictionary, it, sort of, it defines it somewhere along these lines that uh, the evil, it, it, it's immoral, it's immorality, or it's using something for harm. But, you know, when I think about that, that definition, it's really sort of a surface level definition that doesn't get to the root of what the problem is. And it's the very reason why Jesus is looking at a religious society and saying that what you're doing is evil, when you think about what morality is, if you just define evil in that way, evil is the lack of, of morality, it's immoral, like, the question then we should be asking is what, what makes things moral? Because in our society today, the God of America isn't Jesus. The God of America is ourself. America's God is you, me, we wake up every day and we, we see life, uh, ourselves as the center of life, and we ask the question, what will make me happy because life should be all about me? And I certainly think God wants you to be happy, but, but God doesn't want you to understand the purpose of life is about you. And so the God of America, the God of America is self, and really the religion of America is Oprah Winfrey. And you think about what, what Oprah is known for saying, what's your truth? What's your truth, right? And, and so what, what we're saying without saying is you define the purpose of reality and existence in and of yourself. And so if therefore, on that kind of basis, the, the determination of what is moral and not moral is you because you are the center of the universe. And that is what God calls evil. Because life wasn't created for you. 
Life was created for him. Life is about his glory, not yours. But it's when you find life for his glory that you really truly find joy in why it was, why it was uh, given for us or why we have come into existence. I, I heard it put this way once that um, there was a, recently there was a, a, a dean of students in an Ivy League school who got before the student body and he was aghast by how the student body was living. And he said to the student body, he said, guys, we're going to have to get back to the basics and we're going to have to teach you values again. Of which one of the students stood up and said, that's fine, but whose values are you going to teach? And the dean stopped because he didn't know where to go and walked off stage. So that's the determining factor, isn't it? (laughs) Whose values say so and why do we live life the way that we should? And this this is where Jesus is coming to the Jewish people in this moment and calling it evil is because they've taken what God has created for them and they really started to write extra laws and rules to to what they were doing in life and they made it about the laws and rules for which they created as, as themselves apart from God, honestly. And that's what evil is. I think sometimes the best way to think about evil in a, maybe a philosophical way is to compare it to a hole, which is a weird thought. Is How is evil like a hole? Um, if you were to leave out, out of here and go out into our lot, maybe a little gravel pit in the back, and, and you were to grab a shovel and just dig, you, know, you, could, you could create a hole. But here's the thing about a hole. A hole can't in, exist in and of itself. A hole only can exist if it's if it's without the form from which it came, right? So, so there has to be the absence of something for in order for a whole to come into existence, right? And the same is true for evil. Evil can't exist in and of itself. It must be absent of something. And what is it? God. It's absence of the presence and purpose of God. That's what evil is. I determine God, not you, not you. I am in charge, God, not you. It's about what I want, Lord, not you. And that kind of society becomes a little dangerous, not just a little dangerous, a lot of dangerous. Because when you're reading in Genesis, that's what led to the destruction of everything. That's what Adam and Eve did, right? God, not you, us. God, step aside. We know better than you do. And so they take the apple to declare themselves God. And what happens is the destruction of the world. What happens in our society when people take that sort of step, they push God out of the way? Well, ultimately, might makes right. Whatever the, the majority of, the, of people want sometimes goes, or even the minority, as long as they scream louder and fight harder, eventually they win the day. It's the might that makes right. Everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. And this is what Jesus is saying to us in these two contrasting ideas here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify to it because its deeds are evil. But then Jesus says, do you want to know the answer? It's not morality. It's not morality. Remember, guys, the, Jesus is saying this to the most moral people probably on earth at this time. The answer isn't morality because if you just substitute the answer for morality when society seems like it's, it, it, it's lost its virtues and, and it, it's lost its, its moral compass, like just to say morality, the question then is whose morals? Whose values? The answer isn't morality. The answer is worship. 
What does your heart surrender to? Why do you wake up and do what you do? Who directs your life? It's not about what you do, but who you are connected to. Because who you're connected to will determine what you become. And you see Jesus' heart for his people. I don't think Jesus is saying, look, the world's evil just because he wants to make, create a battle. I don't think he's saying this just because he wants to be hateful for people. In fact, in John chapter 3, it says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is very aware that this kind of statement, even though people aren't going to like it, it's, it's going to lead to his death. He knows that. And yet he stands up for this statement anyway. Why? Not because he hates the people. He loves the people. It's because he wants the people to experience life. And you know, when I, when I say this, guys, I'm not saying this so that we go out in this world and, and be obnoxious and thorns in people's eyes. I'm not interested in being obnoxious. Who wants to live a life like that where you get to wake up today and Jesus is calling for me is just to be annoying to everybody. Nobody wants to do that, right? There's, <laughs> there's, that's not what God calls us to. But I love, I love the way Paul says it in 2 Timothy 2.24. Just listen to this verse. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged. And so what he's saying to us is, look, God doesn't, he's not calling you in this world to be hateful to people. In fact, because you're in Jesus, that should be the last thing that you should do because the one that you're following is gracious and loving to the point that he lays down his life just to bless you. And so if you find yourself free in Jesus, we're not coming into this world to attack this world. We're coming to this world to serve this world because where the world is lead, leading to is destruction because they've, they've chosen a path that's contrary to him. And even if they define it as good, if it's devoid of God, it's still evil because the world was created for him. It's created for him. And what evil is, is the absence of God's presence. So our heart should be inclined to invite him in, not to, not to dictate to God what should happen, but to ask God to lead our soul into the freedom that he delivers because from him, from him comes living water. But you see within this passage, the tension that's all over Jesus, Right? who the people see him as, and they, they fail to see his purpose. Verse five, Pastor Wheaton brought this up, uh, um, so I'm gonna do this very quickly here, but verse, verse five and six, you see how it starts to unfold as, as they, they delve with this statement that Jesus introduces to them. Verse five, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him, talking about Jesus' brothers. Jesus had brothers and sisters in verse six, and Jesus said, or at least half brothers and sisters. In verse six, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So here's what's happening in chapter seven. Uh, chapter five, Five to ten of, of the book of John is the festival chapters. The Jews are celebrating festivals, and, and in, in chapter seven, they're going to the festival of, of booths, and, and the Jesus's brothers are going up, and they're trying to get Jesus together. They're like, look, Jesus, if if you are who you think that you are, it, it's got to be hard being brothers with Jesus. Like, you know, mom's always looking at them, thinking everything Jesus does is great. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Right? I don't know if that's how Mary talked, but probably probably not. But but you got to think as brothers, brothers of Jesus, like, man, if there's one thing, guy you want to get behind the alley and just punch him in the gut, right? It's like, Jesus, people hate you. Go up to Jerusalem. I told them to go up to Jerusalem. It's like, they're really going to have their way with you. Jesus, come up with us. Let's do that. And Jesus is like, no way. I'm not going up there. They want to kill me, right? And they're like, oh, come on, Jesus. If you are who you say you are, you really got to prove it. And Jesus says to them, uh, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Let me, let me just say a few things about this. Um, one, um, 
I love how, how scripture unfolds here because as you get to the book of Acts, what you find, chapter one, Pastor Wayne brought this up to us last week, Jesus' brothers become believers. They're not believers here, they become believers. And so I just say this, um, guys, I know sometimes walking with Jesus in this world is not easy. It's not easy. This past year has not been easy. Trying to keep a church together over a pandemic when everyone has a different opinion is that's not easy. And you guys have been you guys have been very gracious. Okay, so thank you for your love and grace and care. I have heard horror stories other places, and I get on my knees. I'm like, thank you for our church. Like even even in your opinion, you still you can lay things aside and do your best to love each other. Thank you for doing that. Right, but 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 still still following after the Lord. It's not easy in this world. But let me just encourage you here. Just be patient, be loving, be Jesus to people. Because what you find as the story unfolds is Jesus' brothers become believers. Even if that's not true with your family, let's say you're the only Christian in your family, even if that's not the case, even if you choose to walk with Jesus the rest of your life and no one in your family follows Jesus, guys, you still honor Jesus. We don't follow Jesus to try to manipulate people. We follow Jesus because it's true, and, and, and in loving Jesus, we learn to love people. That's, that's, that's the result of pursuing Jesus, and so you should never stop caring for people. I know it's hard. I know it's not always easy. I know people bring conflict to your life because they live for a system opposed to you. That's what Jesus is experiencing here, but don't stop being Jesus to people. And he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Let me just, let me just point out what Jesus is saying here. Because in verse 6, Jesus gives this statement like, it sounds like he's not going to go to the festival. And then a few verses later, Jesus is at the festival. It's like, what's up with this, Jesus? Are you lying to your brothers here? Why would you tell them you're not going and then you're going? What Jesus is saying here is his brothers are trying to get, get him to come out and do this grand reveal, this pinnacle moment, Jesus. Let's just lay down the law, declare yourself king. This is your moment, Jesus. Just go. And Jesus is saying, my time's not yet come. And this is a phrase that's used repeatedly in the Gospel of John. First time Jesus did it was in the wedding of Cana with his mom. Next time Jesus does it is with his brothers. And what Jesus is saying here is, my, my grand moment for which I'm, I'm really here on earth, it, I've, not rec- I've not come to that yet. Where I'm declared the king, I'm not there yet. You know where that happens? It's at the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus says, my hour has come. Father, glorify me as I glorify you. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, what's, what phrase is written above Jesus' head? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Jesus' hour to, to take his throne, the rightful position for which he's come, it's, it's, not, it's not come yet. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, Jesus has no problem going to Jerusalem after this, but he just wants his brothers to understand, look, the, what you're pushing me to, that, that hour is not yet here. Your hour is always here because you're living for the world, but, but that hour is not yet here. So they fail to see Jesus' purpose. And no, number two, they, they fail to see his personhood. Look in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. And others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And let me just, let me, let me say this for, for our faith in Jesus and how we encourage people in Jesus. It is not enough to simply say Jesus is a moral man. In fact, or just a good teacher. In fact, Jesus never left that open to us. Jesus made it very clear who he said he was. In fact, Jesus was killed for saying who he said he was. Jesus is, is 
is God and King become flesh to be our Savior and Lord. That's that's who Jesus is. And you see in the story, they're trying to they're, they're trying to softball the the identity of Jesus in order to take away the punchiness of his presentation, right? Uh, as long as, you know, it's okay what you believe, but Jesus is a good teacher. He's a moral teacher. And Jesus is like, that's not me. I, I am God, okay? And that's the temptation that the people are, are facing here. But, but it tells you in verse 13 why they're leaning that way. The fear of the Jews. They're fearful. They're fearful of what the repercussions might be with Jesus. And let me just encourage you. Don't let fear keep you from where God wants to lead you. If God calls you to it, God will get you through it. Jesus says in this verse, rivers of living water will flow from you. Why? Why deny that? Pursuing Jesus is important. And people, I think I said this to us a few weeks ago, that some of the dumbest decisions you will ever make in your life, some of the greatest regrets you will have in life is because you choose to follow fear over faith. And Jesus is wanting, I think, for us to see in this story just the foolishness of the Jews who, who get lost in their own fear from following Jesus. Like, maybe even right now, we're, we're looking at, should I, should I follow Jesus? Should I give my life? What's my family going to say? What's going to happen to my life? Why don't you just leave that up to Jesus and just follow him? If he is who he says he is, that decision is far greater than anything else. And, and maybe, maybe to give it a little bit of a warning in the book of, of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 8, when God judges, there's a, there's a, there's a verse in Revelation 21, verse 8, where it, where it talks about God judging the world. And, and, and the first people group that it talks about judging are the cowards. So if you're going to deny Jesus, do it for a different reason than fear. <laughs> that's what this verse is saying. Don't let fear drive you from where God calls you. Let, let the Lord, Lord lead you. And then verse 3, they fell to see his words and therefore worship. Look in verse 14. In the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? When he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Uh, something to think about. They marveled, but they never really worshiped. They were they're amazed by Jesus, but they never really truly surrendered to Jesus. And they, they give this remark about how great he is. They had this certain system set up for how you were to learn under a rabbi. And they knew that Jesus really had never followed that full path uh, of, to, the, to get to the position where he was to be able to teach. But they were amazed by it. And, and guys, I, I would just say that about the Bible. Like, there are a lot of people that read things about the Bible, but never spend time just in the Bible. And the Bible's given to us to transform your life. It speaks wisdom into your heart. It's not about just knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. We're not interested in just making you sound smart or puffing you up, but just to see you wise in the ways of the Lord. And, and if you want God to speak to your life, like he wrote his words down, let him speak into your life by, by reading his word. And, and to do more than just marvel at the saying, but, but to really worship. Now, I like to think as a church, like what we are about is God's word. This is a conviction we will not back down from. This is nothing we will shy from. We, we want to be loving in the way that we inter- interact with people. But we also understand that the, uh, that the, truth, uh, the, the truth creates an obstacle. 
But we're not going to diminish from the truth. We'll stand for God's word. We, we open God's word to learn, and we open our hearts to love. That's what we're about as, as God's people. And I, I love the submission Jesus expresses to the Father here because he's modeling for us how our lives should look. This is, Jesus is saying, do you know how, you, how you, you get to this place of where I am in this wisdom? It's, it's the Father's teaching, God's teaching. God's giving you his teaching. Jesus is saying, look, look, if you want what you see that I'm demonstrating to you, you can have it. You can have this kind of wisdom because it's not just my teaching. It's the Father's teaching that's been delivered to you. If you would just spend time with him. That's what he's saying to the religious leaders here, to hear him. And then, and then Jesus really, at this point, starts to teach us who he is. Uh, I love this, verse 19. As not, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Don't, never say that to Jesus. Okay? You have a demon. And who is seeking to kill you? Like, that, this is an interesting verse for me. I'm, I'm looking at, I was reading this this week. I'm like, are they gaslighting Jesus? I think they're gaslighting Jesus in this verse. That's what's happening, right? If you don't know what gaslighting is, here's, here's the definition. It's a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or group covertly sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment. As we're looking at Jesus, Jesus, you're crazy. Who wants to kill you? But when you look in this, this very chapter, verse 1, uh, that Jesus is like, yeah, the people want to kill me. Verse 25, the crowd right after this says, Jesus, they want to kill you. Yeah, in this verse, they're like, Jesus, who's going to kill you? And then in verse 30, you see people running around trying to, address, uh, trying to arrest Jesus. Uh, they're gaslighting Jesus in this passage. And then uh, verse 21, and Jesus answered them, I, didn't, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Let me say this. Um, Jesus, at this point, has only really performed one miracle at the temple. It's been at the pool of Bethesda. Remember that? He, he healed a man that had been, uh, he, he had been uh, crippled for most of his life. Jesus comes in and heals him. And the crowd is still stuck on that. That's why Jesus is getting criticized in this chapter. And Jesus is like, you guys are, you guys are marveling just at this one work. And then I, I love this, verse 22. Uh, and Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision. All right. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? I, I, I want to maybe try this this week. I don't know. Maybe I, here's a suggestion for your suggestion box. You, in a discussion that's getting, getting heated, just to throw things off, be like, oh, yeah, circumcision, right? <laughs> that's what Jesus does in this verse. Why in the world does he do that? Let's look at this. So Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. In verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because uh, on the Sabbath I, I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge what, you know, judge with right judgment. Okay? Why is Jesus bringing up circumcision? This is, this is not an uncomfortable conversation at all. Right? <laughs> um, here, here's what Jesus is saying. Remember Jesus when he did the healing at Bethesda? At the pool? He healed on the Sabbath. Jewish people didn't like that. They had rules against working on the Sabbath. We work on Friday, Jesus. We work on Sunday. Their Sabbath is Saturday. We work on, we work on Sunday, Jesus, but ain't nobody working on Saturday, Jesus. And because of that, we hate you. You have a demon, right? That's what they're saying to Jesus. And Jesus is just stopping the party for a minute. He says, wait a minute, guys. Don't you circumcise on the Sabbath? 
I mean, according to the Jewish law, if you, if you have a, a, a male child born, he is to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if the eighth day is on a Sabbath day, you circumcise that child on the Sabbath. You don't stop. And isn't that work? Hypocrite. <laughs> but here's what Jesus is saying. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, there are laws of not working on the Sabbath. Those aren't God's laws. That's man's law that the, the Jewish people had written. They developed their own system of self-righteousness, their own form of morality, their own uh, void of God, which God calls evil in this passage. To say, this is what we have determined as right because we are the center of the world and we determine the way things should go because we are in charge. We are God. Life is about me. Oprah Winfrey, watch your truth. They've developed this elaborate system in religion, but we do the same thing. We speak our truth to let everyone believe what they want. That's the way our society is. You believe what you want and you believe what you want. You determine what truth is because you're the center of the world until, until your truth disagrees with me. Then when you disagree with me, we're about to cancel culture you. Isn't that where we're at today? And you think of how it progresses. Like, well, my truth is I want what you have. My truth is your bank account looks bigger than mine. I'll take your bank account. My truth is your house looks nicer than mine. I'll have your house, right? And if that sounds a little preposterous, like where, how are we really there as a society? We may not have, be the place where people are, are taking people's houses, but I'll tell you, we treat each other like that. You're in a position I don't like. So what am I going to do? I'm going to rip you apart because I want where you are. And we degrade each other. Why? Well, because it doesn't match my reality and what I want is most important. Who cares about God? And that's what Jesus is saying here to these people. You've created this whole system and you think it's a good system. But you don't even realize it's void of the very one that you need. And here you are with your might trying to make right to the point that you want to kill the one who sets you free. Why are you void? Why not surrender? And so Jesus makes this bold declaration. You see on that platform then why Jesus just wants to give this statement in verse 37. Because Jesus understands, look, even in the religious society, it's important to know it's not morality that sets you free. It's worship. It's worship. It's it's not until you surrender your heart to him. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Whoever believes me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me just say this. I know Pastor Wayne did a great job on talking about Jewish festivals and how important those were, which is really good for John 5 to 10 because this this whole section of scripture. I want to just bore down a little bit on this particular festival for, for just a moment and why Jesus 
Jesus is saying this. At the festival of booths, every day a priest would go to a pool and in a golden, in a, in, in a golden jar he would, he would fill it up with water and a choir would sing a song. That's Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3 which sings of the, the joy of God's salvation. They would sing this song as the, priest, as the priest would gather this water and he would march back to the temple and the crowd around him during this festival, this, this this time would have been packed in Jerusalem because the festival of booths was, was one of those festivals where the Jewish men, at least, sometimes families were told they had to make a pilgrimage uh, to, to Jerusalem to celebrate. So the streets were packed. And, and as the priest would walk every day uh, for this week up to the temple, he would carry this water and the crowd would sing uh, Psalm 113 to 118 in celebration. And he would pour this water up on the altar in the temple. And it was to remind Israel how God provided provided for them, gave them life in the desert. He brought water from a rock and and that God was going to continue to be their salvation, their source. It was also a foreshadowing of, of God sending salvation to them in Zechariah chapter 14. On the last day they did it, this was the final day of celebration and they did it seven times. And Jesus in the middle of the biggest day with the most people in the middle of all this praise, stands up in front of this crowd and he gives this declaration. If you're ever sticking your neck out, it is this moment that Jesus does this. He already knows that the people want to kill him and now they become uh, more outward in their actions towards him. Jesus takes a huge risk and steps out and says, this is me. I am that salvation. Out of your heart and embracing Jesus will flow rivers of living water, what you try to find and fabricating on your own, Jesus will do it for you. Come to me, who you who are thirsty. Jesus, when he's saying this, he, he's speaking to people who are fed up with the where life is and they want to make their life about something that matters beyond just the temporary. And Jesus in this moment is saying that answer is me. It's not, it's not about morality. It's not about you. It's really, it's about worship. It's not about what you do. It's about who you connect to. Because who you connect to will determine what you become. Because what you see in this passage, let me just conclude with these quick thoughts. God wants to work in you and God wants to work through you. Do you see that? Not only do you find your thirst quenched, but from you flows living water. Number two, when we seek Jesus, what he's saying to us is the best is yet to come. Right? This is going to continue. This living water, it's life-giving forever. Living water flowing from you forever. This, this is so important how you view God. Because if you, if you view, have a low view of God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to permeate in the way you view yourself and purpose in life. But when you see him as the true life source, your soul will cling to that and pursue that. And, and number three, let me say this. If, if Jesus comes to you in this moment so boldly for you, don't back down from him. Don't back down from me. You realize what this story is here for? It's here for you. You realize why Jesus stuck his neck out in this moment? He did it for you. He understood how, how 
this, 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 this type of moment was this precipice moment, this, this hinge point in life, this, this defining place to say to the world, look, this is how everything's set up on this side, this worldly system, even in religion. But what I'm inviting to you is, inviting you to is this life-giving relationship to the point that I am laying down my life that you could walk in it. Embrace me because from you, comes rivers of living water. And in that, you make a difference. I love how John Piper says it. He he says this, and I think it's in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Mission exists because worship does not. Mission exists because worship does not. God, God went on a mission in this world for you because our hearts weren't worshiping. And God calls us on mission in this world for him because hearts aren't worshiping. But the, the thing that sets people free is worship in this King. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.